You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Well, the June jobs numbers are out and they remain healthy. 209,000 jobs created, unemployment ticked down 0.1% to 3.6%. This good economic news dovetails nicely with President Biden's new favorite word, Bidenomics. Uh, Joining me now to talk about whether the American people are willing to give him the credit for that is the chief correspondent for The Washington Post, Dan Baltz. Dan, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning to you. Good morning. So the president and members of his cabinet have been crisscrossing the country touting Bidenomics. Um, Here's what the president said yesterday in West Columbia, South Carolina. I came to office determined, to the point (laughs) of some of my own team thought I was too determined, to change the economic direction of this country, to move trickle-down economics and get rid of it, where everyone uh, uh, from the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, called the program Bidenomics. I'm not sure they meant it as a compliment at the time. Our plan is working. That's a great message, but will it resonate uh, with voters? Or put another way, why isn't he getting the credit he deserves on the economy? Uh, Jonathan, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one is is, uh, partly it relates to the substance of the issue. Um, He has a lot to talk about. I mean, they have significant accomplishments over the course of his presidency. The infrastructure bill, the semiconductor chips bill, the, uh, the... Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, which will pump hundreds of billions of dollars into climate-related investments. Um, They have had steady job growth, uh, more than 13 million jobs created during his presidency. Um, They they have a lot to talk about, and they have a lot that's in the pipeline uh, that they hope people will begin to see. But there's another side to the economy that people are feeling, and that is that the, the inflation rate has remained stubborn. Yes, it has gone down over the last year, um, but it has not gone down as, uh, enough that the Fed is still on, you know, on watch and likely to continue to raise interest rates uh, to push it down farther. Um, and people feel that very directly when they go to the grocery store. Uh, gas prices are down a bit um, again, but uh, but people are paying a fair amount at the pump. So it's those everyday costs that people feel uh, in some ways more than they, they think about the jobs market. Um, but the second part of this, Jonathan, I think <clears throat> is simply that in a polarized environment, um, President Biden is not likely to get considerable credit uh, from uh, at least half of the electorate for the state of the economy. Um, and I think we see the stubbornness of those those numbers. His uh, economic approval numbers uh, are very, very low. I mean, it's two to one negative on his economic approval. And in talking to people who are around the president, I mean, I think their belief is that that's not going to change very quickly, uh, but they they need to do what he has been doing, which is to go out and continue to make the case day in, day out, week in, week out. And while he's making the case, Republicans aren't wasting time with their counter message. Um, Republicans like Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, she's, um, let's just put this tweet. Do we have the tweet? I'm just going to quote the tweet. She, she tweeted out, highest inflation in 40 years, 24 straight months of pay cuts, 37.2% increase in energy prices. That's Bidenomics in action. Is that the best Republican counter argument? 
Well, to some extent, I think it is. I mean, I think when they talk about um, the inflation and, and put that in, in front of people, um, that can have an impact. And I think when we look at some of the survey research data on how people perceive the economy, uh, at this point, despite the fact that there has been steady job growth over many, many months now, um, people don't think that the economy is in a very good place. And as, as you know, as the, the old saying goes, you can't tell people they feel they should feel good if they don't feel good. So um, I, I think that the strategy of the administration uh, is one in which they have to try to tell that story. And frankly, Jonathan, they've been trying to do that for a long time. They've been doing that for more than a year. Um, it has had a minimal effect. Um, they're going to put you know, hundreds of millions of dollars behind advertising uh, between now and, and Election Day and most of it next year uh, to get that message out. Um, and we'll see the extent that it has a significant impact. But again, in a, in a country as divided as this country is and with overall perceptions of the president fairly weak, uh, that's a hard struggle. And uh, one of the other things that um, the administration and the president personally will be doing is racing around the country doing groundbreakings and, and ribbon cuttings due to infrastructure um, and, and all sorts of other things he's done. He's even said um, privately and publicly that he looks forward to going down to Marjorie Taylor Greene's district to break, <laughs> break ground on a project uh, pretty soon. Dan, let's talk about the Republican field for president. You had a column um, where you argued that if Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wanted to overcome his early stumbles to win the Republican nomination for president in 2024, he ought to follow the example of Barack Obama. Explain. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of one of those heads explode uh, 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 cases. Um, there's no comparison between Barack Obama and Ron DeSantis. Let's be clear about that. They are totally different human beings and totally different politicians. Uh, but what always has struck me, and particularly from the beginning of this uh, Republican primary, is that the structure of the race bore some resemblance to the 2008 Democratic campaign, which is to say you had a relatively you know, large field. It's larger among the Republicans, but a relatively large field and a number of substantial people in that field. But basically, there were only two candidates uh, who were at the top and separated from all of the rest. And in 08, it was obviously Hillary Clinton, the favorite and the front runner, and Barack Obama, who came in with celebrity appeal and kind of a head of steam as the, as the, you know, the engaging, young, attractive candidate. Um, you had something like that in the Republican race, where Donald Trump, clearly the, the favorite, clearly the dominant figure in the Republican Party, but Ron DeSantis coming off a very big win um, and, and heading into the primary. Now, in 2008, what many people forget is that Barack Obama was not a polished candidate at the beginning. He struggled. Uh, he, he had difficulty. He was grumpy on the campaign trail. He had difficulty connecting. Um, and his team was very worried about that, not just through the spring, but well into the summer. I mean, there was a dinner that they had after a fundraising event, um, and a handful of his top advisors were there. And, and he said to them, OK, is this the intervention, uh, knowing that they were there to you know, tell him that he had to, he had to get better? And he recognized that, that the campaign was not operating uh, at full capacity. He basically said, if we continue to operate the way, way we are, we're going to lose this race. And over a period of time and into the fall, he became a much better candidate. 
and not insignificantly, uh, Hillary Clinton provided an opening uh, by stumbling. Uh, in comparison, uh, Ron DeSantis has had similar struggles. He has not proven to be the kind of candidate that many Republicans had hoped he would be. Uh, he, he, is, he has a message of, I would call it exclusion rather than inclusion. Um, and and his, his people skills are certainly not Barack Obama's people skills. Um, but the question is, can he regroup? Uh, can he find a way to get another gear in his campaign uh, and begin to move forward? And secondly, is there anything uh, that would dislodge support from from President, former President Trump. And I think that's a big difference that could be uh, between this race and the 2008 race. Dan, I got to get you on one more thing in the less than minute that we have left. Speaking of former President Donald Trump, his fundraising numbers for Q2 are nuts, $35 million, which is more than he raised in Q1. How do any of the, I've lost track how many people are running for the Republican nomination, but how are they going to, how are they going to catch up, if not topple him as the front runner? It's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, Governor DeSantis' uh, team said that uh, in the first six weeks of his candidacy, he raised $20 million, which is not shabby, let's be honest. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty significant number. We don't know the details. We don't know kind of what the average contribution level is. We don't know how many people have maxed out. There are a lot of questions about that, but that's not a shabby number. But that's well behind what President, uh, President Trump has posted for, for this period. And um, again, going back to 2008, one of the things that sustained Barack Obama in that period is that he was uh, he was equaling or and sometimes exceeding what uh, what uh, Hillary Clinton was able to, to do and so it was he was able to keep pace um, but for all of the, the rest of the field this is going to be an enormous challenge uh, for them to try to match um, what Donald Trump is is able to do now you don't have to match it dollar for dollar we know that from from various campaigns uh, but you can't fall uh, significantly behind and and we know that the other thing with with uh, Ron DeSantis and many of the others is they're relying heavily on super PACs uh, which can take huge contributions to do a lot of the work that traditionally has been done by the candidates campaign staff mm -hmm. and, and, and the other thing is I my, the question I have is how much of that money is being used for the campaign and how much of that money is being used for legal defense? But that's just a question I put I put out there for people to ponder over the weekend. Dan Baltz, chief correspondent for The Washington Post, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. You too. All right, we're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor and columnist Eugene Robinson and his first look debut, <laughs> Washington Post <laughs> columnist Max Boot. Gene and Max, welcome to First Look. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be here. Right, so I want to continue the, 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 the fundraising number conversation that I was just having with Dan. I mean, $35 million is a huge amount of money for Donald Trump to raise in the second quarter. It's double what he raised in, in the first three months uh, of this year. Gene, I'll start with you. Are the indictments money makers for Donald Trump? Well, first, Jonathan, I'll make the point that we're both old enough to remember when Donald Trump was such a rich billionaire that he was going to self 
finance his campaign in 2015. <laughs> Remember that? He wasn't even going to raise money. But uh, in any event, um, I, look, the, it, it certainly looks as if the indictments uh, have given him a boost in that they uh, have, have energized the MAGA base. And, you know, I, whether it goes beyond the MAGA base, which is a big chunk of the Republican Party, but not enough votes to reelect you president, maybe enough to get you the nomination, whether it goes beyond that, um, I'll be interested to find out. But, but clearly, people who love Donald Trump seem to love him more now that he's an indicted felon. Max, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, it makes me wonder what's going to happen if he's actually convicted. Is that going to put him over the top in the Republican primaries? I mean, it's it's kind of a, a a disheartening phenomenon. It's one that we're pretty used to by now. But nevertheless, I mean, let's let's just pull back for a second and say, wow, this is this is pretty crazy. I mean, the, there is no way to spin this, I think, reasonably as a political persecution. I mean, this is clearly uh, a a candidate. Uh, who has uh, almost certainly violated the law and has been caught at it. And most Republicans are saying they don't care. And of course, this is coming on top of the fact that, you know, Trump incited an insurrection. He was impeached twice. And again, uh, most Republicans simply don't care. I mean, that's really a, a tragic commentary on my former party. Mm -hmm. Hey, Gene, what did you make of Dan Baltz's um, column, his argument that if Ron DeSantis wants to prevail in his quest for the 2024 Republican nomination, that he should follow the roadmap set by one then-Senator Barack Obama in 2008. Well, look, I, I never argue with the political analysis of Dan Baltz, right? I, you know, <laughs> I, I, people have done that a long time, and they've been, and they've been consistently wrong. So, um, so I, I actually, I do think that Dan, makes an interesting point and an interesting parallel. The, the difference to me is that when, when Barack Obama did find his voice, it was that, that, that hopey, changey voice, as, as, uh, as Sarah Palin called it. It was, it was hope and change. It was an uplifting um, message. And I remember going out uh, to Iowa before the caucuses that year and, and, and watching him deliver his his by then finely honed stump speech to to audiences, uh, and they left these high school gymnasiums practically you know floating out of the out of the building. They were they were so energized and and uh, and encouraged and and he made them feel good. Not, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis doesn't at this point make anybody feel good, I don't think. Um, and and I, I think his theory of the case that he can go, that going running to the right of Trump and being sort of Trumpier than Trump is, is gonna be a winning formula for him. I think that's wrong. Um, but so what is his sweet spot? What is his message that's gonna, gonna let him connect if indeed he decides he needs to change things up? And I can't figure out what that is, but, you know, maybe he'll hit on something. If I could just follow up very briefly, Jonathan, on, on, on Gene's excellent analysis, I would say two things. One, uh, the the DeSantis camp is way too plugged in online, and they're they you know they they get reactions on Twitter and other platforms by denouncing wokeness. But I think what they're finding is that average Republican voters are not nearly as 
as worked up about wokeness as as they are. And this is really a fringe issue in the Republican Party, which is not resonating even with most of the base. So I think they need to broaden their message beyond this culture war stuff, which has gotten out of control with their attacks on Disney, for example. And again, I think they're finding that a lot of Republicans like Disney, too. So that's not necessarily going to be, and it's almost certainly not going to be a winning formula. But the other thing I would say is that, you know, DeSantis also needs to figure out uh, how he's going to actually attack Donald Trump. And so far, he's really refrained from doing it in a serious way. And I think his theory of the case, I would guess, is that he thinks that Trump will probably be convicted and that will remove Trump from the race. And so as long as he doesn't offend Trump's followers, he can pick up some of that support naturally if Trump uh, is is knocked out of the race by the legal system, which is quite possible. But it's also quite possible that doesn't happen. So I think, you know, Trump, DeSantis needs to stop playing it safe and needs to amp up his attempts to actually differentiate himself in a, in a meaningful way from the Republican front runner before it's too late. Yeah, I've always said that the big test for Governor DeSantis will be that first debate um, when he and Donald Trump are on the stage together, standing side by side, and Donald Trump goes Godzilla on him and breathes <laughs> fire on him, and what's going to be his response? But uh, Max, I want to switch Whoa. gears and talk about Ukraine, um, because you had a recent column suggesting um, that those officials who are already writing off the Ukrainian counteroffensive as a failure are wrong. Why? Well, remember, even before the start of the Desert Storm ground offensive in 1991, which is kind of held up as kind of the perfect offensive operation, one of the most lopsided victories in military history, even before the ground war started, there was something like five weeks of punishing airstrikes on Iraqi positions by U.S. and allied air forces. That's necessary to soften up the, def the defenses before the ground troops go into action. Otherwise, they're going to suffer devastating casualties. Well, in the case of Ukraine, they don't have that air force that can inflict punishment from, from the air on the Russian forces. So they can't do the softening up from the air. What they have to do instead, a much more laborious and much more difficult process, is to try to soften up the Russian positions using you know, ground-based systems like the Storm Shadow, for example, uh, a cruise missile that they've gotten from uh, the UK or the, or the HIMARS multiple launch artillery systems they've gotten from the United States. It just takes a while. And I think that they are, you know, proceeding very, very slowly and very deliberately because they don't want to suffer devastating casualties. That's something that Russian commanders don't care about. They don't care how many of their own men they lose. But the Ukrainians are fighting for a democracy. They care about casualties. And so they don't want to just advance willy-nilly into these minefields and, and Russian trenches and suffer horrifying losses. What they're trying to do is to sever the Russian uh, supply lines to make it much more difficult for the Russians to keep their forces in the field. Then they're trying to probe for weaknesses in the Russian lines across, uh, across 600 miles of front. And then, and only then, if they find those weaknesses, if they degrade the Russian supply lines, only at that point will they commit the bulk of their NATO-trained, NATO-armed forces, which so far are not in the battle. So it's been about a month since the Ukrainians started their, their initial offensive operations. I think we just have to be patient. Uh, you know, as President Zelensky and others have said, this is not a video game. This is not something that's going to be over in 30 minutes. It could take months. Uh, to 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 move the front, even if it's going to have success. So I think we just need to give the Ukrainians time uh, to to roll out their plan and not 
you know, uh, beat the drums for faster action, which could result in a lot of dead Ukrainians, which is the last thing anybody wants. And and so given what what Max just said, um, Gene, you know, we have a, a, a story on the front page of The Washington Post today that mm -hmm. President Biden has yep. approved cluster bombs for for Ukraine, mm -hmm. something that the uh, Ukrainian president has been asking for. Um, one, I would love for to get your to get your reaction about that approval. But also, if you could tie into that whether you think Russian President Vladimir Putin will view this approval as a provocation, especially given the environment he's in after the Prigozhin rebellion. And we just find out well, that Prigozhin isn't in Belarus, he's in Russia still. Yeah, look, that's kind of interesting. I, um, so uh, to answer your second question first, I, I, of course I think Putin will paint it as a provocation, even though um, I, I believe it's been reliably established that Russia has been using cluster munitions uh, against Ukraine. Uh, and they may deny that. Uh, neither the United States nor Russia nor Ukraine is uh, a signatory to a, to a, 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 a compact of, of many nations that have forsworn the use of cluster munitions. And, and the, the reason is not just that they are so deadly, but that a certain percentage of these cluster munitions, it could be dozens of, of, of little bomblets inside one shell, and, and a certain percentage will be duds, uh, will not go off uh, immediately, and will, uh, will be unexploded ordnance uh, that poses a, a grave risk to civilians in the in the weeks and months and years to come. Uh, and um, so there's a whole issue that we deal with in our in the in our excellent our news department's excellent story this morning uh, about the dud rate and whether the munitions that we are giving to Ukraine actually conform to U.S. law or not. Um, but uh, it's it, it is a it is a complicated issue. I understand why Ukraine would need to use these kinds of munitions, but it is a complicated issue. Um, can we talk about? I, I want to do a little. Um, well, no. Yeah, no. We are going to talk about NATO now. <laughs> so next week, the president goes to goes to Europe. There's a big NATO meeting in Lithuania. There was the expectation, Matt, that the occasion would be a welcome party for Sweden into the fold, just as um, happened for, for Finland a few months back. But Turkey still has objections to Sweden joining the security pact. What are those objections about? Uh, that's a good question. It's a little bit hard to get a grip on it because it's hard to get any straight talk from Erdogan, the, the Turkish president slash dictator. But basically, I think he objects that Sweden offers asylum to Kurds that, who he claims are terrorists, that the, whereas the Swedes claim that they are uh, political dissidents. So he wants a bunch of these Kurds uh, deported to, to Turkey, where they're going to almost certainly wind up in prison. The, the Swedes are not willing to do that, and it's kind of an impasse. And there was an expectation that after Erdogan won his rigged re-election, uh, that uh, he would have more flexibility on this issue. But so far... That has not been forthcoming, but the expectation is still that, I think from U.S. officials, is still that uh, that Turkey is basically in the Middle East carpet bazaar and they're just, at, you know, they're kind of playing uh, to increase the price that they will get for 
acceding to uh, to Sweden and NATO. Um, Gene Punchbowl is is reporting about a a, a big um, meeting of the the Senate Foreign Relations Committee where the um, uh, Republican Senator Jim Risch of Idaho um, used the occasion to go after not just Turkey but Hungary for standing in the way mm. of Sweden joining the the NATO alliance. What's it going to take? to move Turkey, particularly Turkey, off its anti-Sweden position? Well, I don't, I don't think anyone knows yet exactly, because as Max said, we thought we knew what what uh, Erdogan's game was, uh, and we thought he would be more flexible now, and he has not been. I, I believe he's still the major obstacle, um, uh, a much bigger obstacle than Hungary. But, um, uh, but uh, I, I don't think we know his ultimate price. I think he does have a price, uh, and I think um, uh, the rest of NATO is determined uh, to find out what that is and to get on with uh, Sweden's accession. But, um, but it's you know, Erdogan is is um, is in charge of the clock here, and so we'll we'll have to wait. You know, one other thing that Punchbowl is reporting is that the Biden administration, Max, is using the potential sale sale of F-16 fighter jets as a bargaining chip, basically saying, you know, hey, Turkey, if you let Sweden in, we'll give you these fighter jets. And this is something that Senator Menendez, um, Robert Menendez of New Jersey, chair of the, the committee, has been has been blocking. Do you think that's a worthwhile thing for the administration to do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we need to use all the levers that we have to get the Swedes in. There's no reasonable objection from Turkey to having Sweden join NATO. NATO is going to be strengthened by by having Sweden as a member. And so, yeah, we should uh, certainly use arms sales to Turkey as leverage to uh, to get Erdogan to drop his uh, his objections. Hey, uh, Max, um, um, one thing that, that Ukraine's going to be looking for at that um, NATO summit next week is um, security guarantees from from the NATO countries. Uh, will will Zelensky get them? Probably not in the form that he wants, because what the Ukrainians really want is a roadmap to join NATO, uh, an assurance that they will become part of the alliance. And I think a lot of the Western European members in the US are nervous about doing that because they don't want to be drawn into a direct war with with Russia, which is what the Article 5 collective security guarantee in NATO would imply. And so I think that the, the road that, that President Biden and other leaders are going down is to try to provide uh, Ukraine with bilateral security guarantees uh, that, that don't extend to Article 5. And I think that's a reasonable path to take. And I think we can use as a model our relationships uh, with countries such as Israel and Taiwan uh, where we are pledged under law to provide them with the arms needed to defend themselves. And that's something we need to do with, with Ukraine, I think, because so far we've been aiding Ukraine on a very ad hoc basis. And there is a lot of concern around the world that, you know, what happens if Republicans take the Senate? What happens if Donald Trump is back in the White House? Are they going to cut off aid to Ukraine? And I'm sure that's what Putin is hoping for. I think it's very important for Congress to pass legislation that commits us to providing Ukraine what it needs over the course of many years, at least 10 years, like we have these 
memorandums of understanding with Israel providing aid over the course of a decade. I think we need a memorandum of understanding with, with Ukraine that hopefully will be backed by, by both houses and that will give some certainty to U.S. support. And I think that's a, that's a reasonable alternative to uh, having Ukraine uh, come into NATO, which I don't think is, uh, is going to happen anytime in the near future just because of the, of the risk of being drawn into war with Russia. Gene, we've got less than a minute left, but I would love two weeks ago today, um, and in you know in the evening um, that that Friday evening, we started getting the first tweets uh, and news about what we now call the Prigozhin Rebellion. Um, I would just <laughs> love your thoughts on Putin's standing today versus where it was two wow. weeks ago today. Well, it, it, it's diminished. I mean, you you, you don't you don't uh, you know if you're Mr. All Powerful, um, the great leader, uh, you you don't allow a column of of, uh, of troops to you know to go hundreds of, of miles into your country uh, unopposed. Um, it, 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 so he is definitely diminished. Now, is it is this fatal to Putin or Putin's rule? I don't think it is. Uh, there's no indication it is. It's very interesting to learn uh, over the last 24 hours that apparently Prigozhin is not in Belarus after all, that he's in Russia, that he's maybe in St. Petersburg. Um, uh, how I don't see how Putin and Prigozhin sort of coexist nicely uh, at this point um, with, with that sort of open um, military challenge that Prigozhin presented to to Putin. I don't see how this relationship lasts. It's complicated. Eugene Robinson, <laughs> Max Booth, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. You too. you too, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.